Hey, dummies. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Tyler Froberg. I'm Noah Young with the Shiloh Farm. And this is Farming for Dummies. The podcast where we explore the vast world of agriculture and break it down in a way that dummies like us can understand. Noah, Noah, Noah. Yes, Tyler. Y'all didn't get snow again this week, did you? No, we didn't. And I don't know, for whatever reason, I hope you can hear it in my voice, man. I'm hyper tonight. I'm so hyper. I think it's because of our interview. I don't want to skip to that part, but like, I'm just excited. We got, it's springtime now. Everything's in the ground. It's green. We had a baby goat this week. Oh my gosh. We had our first goat that was actually born on the farm. We bought a goat that had babies with her, but this was our first uh, kid on the ground. And I'm just, it's a good week. It's a good week. How about you? I got to say, hang on real quick. I just got to say this. We don't give enough shameless plugs. Okay. And so I'm going to go ahead and plug the Shiloh Farm on Instagram. Because if you don't follow the Shiloh Farm on Instagram, (laughs) Noah's feed is phenomenal. And if you want to see this these baby critters it's the place to be <laughs> uh, you're making me feel a little guilty because i was here i was bashing your instagram saying it wasn't quite as good as zach's last week so <laughs> making me feel a little bad so i'm the worst there though right like i'm like a one post every two weeks on instagram right i've posted three this week since we talked to zach i was like i gotta step my there veggie go. game up. <laughs> you, little motivation that's good. Little motivation. Good. Well, check out but Farmer of veggies, on Instagram as well. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Speaking of veggies, man, it was a busy week. Busy week. We're just full on into growing. What's, Lots what's of going squash on in the this ground. week specifically that you guys are up to? Because I feel like I feel like we've heard a lot about potatoes. I've heard about some of the squash. Mm-hmm. What What is new at the farm? Honestly, nothing new. Okay. We're... And you're actually going to hear about some of this uh, with our guests later about that, like growing, mm. right? We're, we're, we're growing and we're doing all the things that are involved when that plant is growing. And so uh, weed management, moisture management, we haven't had rain in about two and a half weeks. You heard it here. I'm always complaining about <laughs> how much rain we do get. And now I'm complaining that we haven't had any typical farmer, <laughs> but yeah, we're, we're in that active growing stage and man, your excitement's rubbing off on me, Noah. I'm just like, yes. Oh man, I'm glad that my energy is passing through the microphone to you, but I want to remind you to remain calm. Ah, I see what you did there. <laughs> well, I will remain calm because our guest this week is a lettuce farmer extraordinaire. We're going to be talking to John Dinsmore with Dinsmore Farms from Yuma, Arizona. He's a fourth generation farmer in that area, and he just happens to be TikTok famous. I'm really looking forward to this because I'm always really passionate about vegetable history. You always learn something interesting. We're going to learn about the Caesar and the Romaine Empire. (laughs) What? (laughs) Okay, enough of the puns. What we're really going to learn today is that John is one of the greatest lettuce growers of all time. And that when you buy lettuce at a store, he tells us there's a decent chance from November to February that he's seen that lettuce out in a field. But we're not just going to talk about the final product. We're going to walk through seed to soil, the water aspect of growing vegetables in the desert, and everything in between. So with that, we are going to hop on the old Good Living tractor and start plowing that compaction between your ears. Let us welcome to the show the Farmer John... Dinsmore, the green screen <laughs> farmer, TikTok star himself. How are you, sir? 
doing well. Thank you. Uh, quite the intro. I can't believe we're starting <laughs> off this early with the dad jokes. I'm, I apologize, John. Are you are you saying we should leave it alone? <laughs> this, this might be one of those. If you don't like puns, just skip this episode, because I think the three of us are probably some of the most pun happy farmers you'll ever meet. <laughs> That's right. Now, John, the world gets to see your operation. There's there's no doubt in anyone's mind that you're the real deal there in Yuma, Arizona, growing produce, among other things. Uh, and you've grown quite the following on social media. Yes, it's been um, an opportunity that I never really thought I would have. You know, getting to farm is something I wanted to do since I was a kid, but being able to share that with people all across the world because of social media has just added an extra layer of of excitement and fun to farming because farming is not always fun like many jobs but having <laughs> extra reasons to be able to celebrate those learning opportunities and i'm not even saying celebrating the victories it's it's the opportunities there's been moments where <laughs> i've jumped on a live to talk to uh the viewers and just say all right this is where i messed up this caught me out of mm. out of left field and Gosh darn it, I'm going to make a note, but want you to see that this is real life out here. Now, you said that you wanted to do this as a kid. Tell us about your childhood and what inspired you to be a farmer. I am one of those few very fortunate individuals that um, I'm a part of a multi-generational farm. So I'm the fourth generation um, who is farming in this in this valley. And it's not something that I really took for the gift that it was until I was probably into my early adulthood. As a kid, I would just jump on my bicycle and follow my dad down to the shop or my grandfather and grew up drawing tractors. You know, I mean, that's all I ever wanted to be. Uh, another conversation for later is I, I, I drew two things growing up. I was really good at drawing tractors and lowriders. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but um, no, you know, farming is something that I know has been in my blood, but being able to grow up learning from both my grandfather and my father in real time and and be able to to just walk through these fields with them and, and learn from historical reference points and, and then try new things and bring new new ideas to the farm have been um, have been a, a big a big gift to me. Did did your grandfather and father grow produce as well? Uh yes. So my father and my grandfather, my great grandfather not so much. He had some in, involvement with vegetable production, but um, his farming, to the best of my understanding, was more into seed production, which down here in the desert southwest, we are now carrying the title very proudly, the winter lettuce capital of the world, along with being the sunniest place on earth. But prior to that, many, many years ago, people came before us and helped establish good, um, good water infrastructure, because most of our ground out here is irrigated land coming from the Colorado River. And also helped us just establish good farming practices that to this day we're able to start, um, we're able to continue applying to what we do and, and really starting to improve them more drastically so we can continue to conserve our, our resources. Did you end up going to school to learn a lot of this or what was your educational background? So, you know, growing up on the farm allowed me to learn a lot directly from the experiences um, working on the farm. And being able to apply things I learned in classes directly to, to the farm as well. So the benefit of growing up in a farming community with a good community college is right when I graduated high school, the University of Arizona worked with our community college out here to have an extension program. And 
it was a uh, an opportunity for me to get a music scholarship into the uh, community college playing my trumpet. And so that helped pay a little bit of the first two years there. And then rather than jumping into Tucson uh, to go to the University of Arizona, I was able to stay local and farm. At the time, I really had no major desires to to go away from Yuma. I really just wanted to farm, just wanted to be here. So it was a, a real big help to be able to go to class at night, take what I was learning back the next morning and apply it, whether it be plant pathology or soil science or even you know Spanish class. So have you been on the family farm your entire career or did you ever branch out before coming back? You know, right out of college, I sat through a... Uh, a short seminar where they were very much encouraging those who are a part of a multi-generational family operation or, or farm, any business really for that matter, to to take the opportunity and go elsewhere for a year or two, work for somebody else, gain those life experiences. And for some reason it stuck with me. And so I remember coming home from that and, and talking with, with my family. And uh, from there I worked uh, with the University of Arizona Cooperative Extension. Uh, for a year assisting with ag research and then from that uh, was able to gain a really sweet opportunity to start farming between here in the Yuma Valley and Salinas, California, which is really the capital of most of our winter, well, excuse me, all of our annual vegetables. Yuma takes on that title during the winter months, but Salinas really never quite stops. Um, Just about every vegetable grown is is happening there in that valley. So it was a great opportunity for me to branch out. I spent about four years traveling with the harvest uh, back and forth, developing food safety protocols. Um, that was shortly after the uh, E. coli 015787 outbreak in spinach back in 07. And it was a good opportunity to to spread my wings and, and learn and uh, farm with some others. And it's intense up there. My hat's off to those in Salinas. They're uh, really knocking it out of the park up there. And We don't have to go too deep into this, but that's something that sets produce aside from a lot of our other crops that are grown is the food safety aspect. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, food safety. Now, most farms don't just have food safety personnel. They have departments representing them because I spend much of my time during the winter months during our produce season down here working on documentation for whether I'm I'm sampling our water sources whether I am doing field uh, field assessments, uh, water security assessments, just basically identifying any potential threat or security issues to our water source, to our fields, meaning have, uh, you know, on a Monday morning, let's say we're going to jump out there. My goal is to to travel every field and make sure, you know, did were there any accidents? Did, did any vehicles, you know, is there any busted glass, <laughs> you know, in the field that happens? Um, any, you know, any beer bottles thrown out by the intersection? And just, I mean, it's food safety has really, really become the staple of what we farm for. You know, our our love for farming goes beyond just wanting to to provide healthy food choices across the country and, and the world, really. Now it's wanting to make sure that the consumers are confident in what we're able to farm and what we're able to grow. I think that's something that we miss a lot is that consumer trust. It's not something we, it's not something that's often in front. It's not something that people are talking about enough, but that's, that's a really good point. That's a, and that's a really good way to put it, that consumer trust, because when I first jumped onto to social media, really more about 10, 11 years ago, I just like to share my photography. That's something I enjoyed. And I would get a lot of questions about 
food safety and and what were we able to do to try to prevent issues and you know uh jumping on to to TikTok providing video which forced me to talk more was was hard at first and shoot it's still hard it still gets embarrassing making videos but <laughs> no but you're, come on but you're right though it is my job to tell my farm's story and i realize that is somewhat played out no offense to y'all out there that are advocating i appreciate you i love you but it's more than just telling telling the story tell, telling our story i can't expect anybody else to share what my family's farm is doing than myself. It's my job. And so I realized that mm -hmm. every time I post a video, whether I'm being silly, sarcastic, or, or serious, I need to make sure that I am laying the foundational groundwork for information to, to be fluid there, or just to make sure that people know I'm available. Ask me questions. And I get messages and, and comments on the regular that are just asking about, hey, do you sample your water? And, and I want to almost cringe because we've been sampling water sources for, gosh, 15 years now, more, wow. longer. You know, tissue samples are, are pulled before every harvest uh, throughout the entire field. You know, you may come to a 10-acre romaine lettuce field and see 100 yellow flags throughout the field. Somebody would say, oh, man, what's that? Is that bad? No, that's the lab that came in and pulled tissue samples in various locations all across an entire field that has no trees nearby, no telephone lines, no reason to assume we would have a food safety risk from bird droppings or, or coyotes or really anything, but it's just, it's the due diligence of what we need to do now. And without social media, without podcasts like this, how, how should people know that that's what we're doing out mm. there? You just mentioned a really interesting thing. You gave us a really good list of some of the food safety things you're looking for, but the I never thought about bird droppings, coyotes running through the field. What exactly are, are some of the biggest concerns and challenges of growing a food product versus uh, corn or soybeans? Location, location, location. Uh, that's always the number one thought that goes into what is going to be planted on a certain block down here. Thankfully, I've really only got a couple ranches that have some desert riparian areas that border up next to it. And even at that level, it's not a real large area. So um, my, my biggest concerns there really would be more of the sand blowing into the field. And so we'll make little safety barricades just to prevent any um, sand, any particles, any trash coming off the road. So most of our fields will have some type of a food safety barrier offense. And on top of that, our biggest risk outside of the uh, the birds and, and really the, the coyotes are the people. And every season now here in the in the valley, we've got great local ag groups. One of them, I got to give them a shout out, the Yuma Safe Produce Council has done a phenomenal job over the years in meeting once a month. And they do a great job of getting a lot of the farmers involved, including myself, to go to local events and just set up a booth and, and have general information saying, hey, um, we know that during the winter months here, it's great weather. You want to walk your dog down a ditch bank. If there's a sign that says no trespassing, please honor that. Um, if if you don't see a sign and you're walking your, your pets, please pick up after them. Um, don't let them jump into the water source because that is going to be used to irrigate a spinach crop that has to be sprinkler irrigated. So it's an overhead irrigation. That water is going to be rained on there. Um, and so to answer your question broadly, it's uh, it's people, it's animals, it's it's the environment, you know, the winds. Um, there's a lot a lot at play here. 
man, I had no idea there was so much to think about, so many things to protect against that my mind's already just like stressed out thinking about the food in my garden. I can't imagine dealing with several acres. But what exactly are you growing? You mentioned some of the products, but tell us a little bit about your operation. So this time of year, we're focusing on our spring and summer crops. Uh, we're heavy into durum wheat and a lot of feed. So you'll see a lot of alfalfa and sedan grass in the valley. Along that, a lot of cantaloupes, watermelons. And then when we jump into September, that's where our farm picks back up into the vegetable production. And every season varies depending on what the shippers need, but we have been growing anything from cilantro, baby kale, spinach, uh, um, mustards, all the way down into the romaine lettuces and the iceberg lettuce. Now, John's going to tell us everything that it takes to grow that beautiful lettuce after the break. All right, Tyler, I have a confession to make. Tell me. I wasn't really thinking about using the Eaton Pet and Pasture bedding for mulch in my garden bed until you said that last week on the commercial. I just rolled with it because I thought it sounded excellent. So this week I tried it and wow, well done. You're smarter than you look. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just hit me a couple of weeks ago. I was spreading some of the Eaton Hemp bedding in Pepper the Mule's pen. And I thought, why couldn't we use this in growing spaces? It's funny, too, because I'm sure Eaton is like, whoa, 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 guys, this is this is for animals. It's like one of the best beddings you can possibly find out there for your chickens and any of your pets. But here we are talking about using it for alternative purposes. For real, guys, it, it works great for your pets. <laughs> OK, we're going to we're going to change this up this time. Check this out. Noah, are you ready for this? Yeah, I'm ready. Only the best for your pets, vegetables, fruit trees and anything else that Farmer Froberg tells you to use it for. Eaton Pet and Pasture. Dot com. <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget to use the code dummies for 20% off your first purchase, y'all. Yeah, and we joke, but honestly, none of this would be possible without the fine folks at Eaton Pet and Pasture. They have been excellent to work with. And so if you guys could give them some love and support, if you love our content and our bad dad jokes, you're going to love Eaton Pet and Pasture. So check them out. So you go out to dinner on Friday night. You order your entree, but out comes first is that beautiful salad that we all enjoy. But it went through so many processes to get to that restaurant on your table. Now, John, I would assume that we're starting with a seed here. That's correct. Yeah. So we'll we'll identify those seeds right now. So right now for us, it's it's May. And those varieties and, and seeds will be determined here over the next few weeks that will be started to plant in September. And so earlier in the show, you mentioned shippers and that they make a lot of the decisions. Are they selecting the varieties that they're wanting to stock this year? Yeah, so growing vegetables varies on how it's marketed. In some cases, it's much ownership is taken on by the farmer themselves. And then in other areas, it's a contracted type growing operation where somebody brings the equipment, the land, the know-how, and then they kind of follow the uh, the directives of a specific shipper or, or label harvester, if you will. And so in this case, we'll work with a shipper who will be providing their best guesstimated planting schedule here um, in early summer so that we can start to work backwards 
uh, when we know we'll need to be ready. So, for example, if if I know I've got a, a an iceberg lettuce crop that needs to be planted, say, September 1st, and I know that I'm going to need, just historically speaking, at least six to seven weeks to get that ground ready, then I identify what ranch is that on, what crop do I have now. Um, if it's a sedan grass and I was hoping to get two cuttings off of it, but it looks like I might not be able to squeeze that second cut, then I'll be able to start working myself backwards and, and be able to kind of coordinate the timing. I see. So you've selected the variety. You work backwards to the date where all the work needs to start and is the first step all of your groundwork? Yeah. So I realized I did overstep that. So the importance of the varieties is every variety has a certain window of time or a time slot. So in the Yuma Valley, we know that September is a warm time of year. And by the time a lettuce grows to, to harvest, it will still be relatively warm. Any vegetables that are planted in November will be harvested when it's much cooler. Um, and so those particular varieties will be, will be tested throughout the year. Those companies that are purchasing the seed will then um, take them on and say, all right, John, we want you to plant these varieties here on this field, if you would. And, and so then that's where the, the best part for us is to make sure that we're timing our soil uh, and making sure it's ready to go in time. So let's talk about that soil because I'm a big fan of no-till and usually cover crops. And obviously for your operation, you guys are doing massive amounts of tillage. Can you talk about some of the soil prep and maybe explain to me why why that's important in your area? Yeah, absolutely. And everybody is allowed to have their own opinions and those opinions are welcome. One thing that I've really enjoyed about social media and TikTok in particular, it's provided me a lot of opportunities to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Absolutely. Um, there's been a lot of lot of discussions about why we farm the way we do and then others saying, you know, uh, why they farm the way they do. So with us down here, we farm every day of the year. Uh, rarely will you ever see any ground here fallow. Rotation, rotation, rotation is is the key to to farming successfully out here, as well as managing your water and, and your soil moisture. Um, when we come out, let's say, for example, right across the street here, we're looking at a sedan grass field, and I know that I'd like to get two cuttings off of that. Um, the sedan is helping me right now in the rotation. I chose it specifically for this field because this field had, had some weed issues, a lot of weeds growing. We had quite a bit of purslane and some... Uh, some mustards growing. And I know the Sudan will just totally shadow it out and, and those weeds will not thrive. And so by the time I get in here to work the ground, if I were to just lightly mow the grass down, try to list the beds up, we call it listing, to put the raised vegetable beds up in the field, one, I'm going to have very uh, varied levels throughout the field, basically ups and downs. Um, which will create a problem with water not being able being able to uh, to leach and drain efficiently, and also the trash left behind or those roots uh, from other plants like the sedan grass will then become more of an issue for the the lettuce that we want to grow, and that will then increase either hand labor and or herbicides. Um, the additional vegetation around the field can can harbor pests and rodents, which going back to food safety are a big part of what we do. And I'll also throw in, if you look at my garden, we tilled it this year. So I'm in the same boat. I just had to ask. I'm sure you get that all the time. Yeah. And I'll jump, I'll, I'll add more. If I bore you, stop me. No, this is great. So 
once we come out of a summer crop, even in alfalfa, I'll rotate alfalfa into a field because it's a legume. And, and although it may not be much nitrogen, it's fixating that nitrogen back, back into the soil. And it helps us mellow out the soil. On some of our ground, it's real heavy clay. and others, it's got some sandy streaks through it. You know, Google Maps has always been fascinating to look at these fields from above because you'll see those very, you know, lighter soils and dark soils just kind of swirling around. Hmm. And the best, best thing we can do before we get beds raised up in a vegetable field, the best thing we can do down here in this valley is to laser level. And so that's one of the reasons why we have to till uh, efficiently. And I say officially in the sense that there are some summer crops that we can get away with where we go in, do a real light tillage. I mean, like, let's say a half, half what we normally would and jump right over it, laser it. And then we might be ready to go where we can list it back up into beds and uh, be ready for, for vegetable production. But if we don't till most of these blocks, we have a hard pan down here because there's so much sand here in the desert that maybe two, three feet below the, the surface. If we don't open that up, the soil will not breathe and the soil will die. And often in our fields, um, you'll see certain areas of the field that maybe weren't worked up because it was close to the corner of the field or close to the pavement. And you'll see how fast that soil will turn. And it's a good reminder that what we're doing out here is bringing life back to this soil. This is desert land. The reason... Uh, folks came here years and years and years ago was because it, the proximity of the Colorado River, adequate sunlight. You know, we average just over three inches of rain a year, but the irrigation water we're getting is we're at the tail end of the of the hose here. You know, we're getting water that comes from the mountains, from the snowpack, through the dams. And as it continues to deplete, that's why our job down here is even more crucial to make sure that we're managing our resources as best we can so we can utilize less water than we ever have, whether that's through drip irrigation or, um, you know, different types of row patterns. If we were to say, let's move uh, cauliflower instead of one line on a bed, let's move it to three lines on an 84-inch bed, although that will require an overhead sprinkler irrigation, can we use less water through that? Can we more efficiently apply our fertilizers and nutrients to the soil that way. And so there's every season, there's, there's new technology and new experiments uh, being tried out. Here. Interesting. Okay. So I can picture it. You've done all your groundwork. We, you've laser leveled. This sprawling field is just in beautiful straight rows, a perfect flat tabletop to plant in. When you're doing a lettuce crop, are you direct seeding the seed or are you bringing in transplants? The only transplants that we'll see out here in this valley, um, I shouldn't say the only, but the majority of the transplants we'll see out here are your cauliflowers or maybe an occasional celery. But most of the fields will be planted just straight seed right into the ground. And now lettuce seed, it's pretty small. So are you using a pelletized or coated seed or are you putting the straight seed into the ground? That's a great question. So the seed that's being applied and planted is a coated seed. And it is normally laid just, just under the surface, kind of a rule of thumb, depending on the soil, again, because each field is different. Some are cloddier, some are real smooth and sandy. Um, the rule of thumb really is you kind of want to be able to see two or three seeds per, per dozen or so. If you see more, that's not a bad thing, but you need to be aware of the weather that's going to really pop up before you get it, uh, the germination water on or the irrigation there. So 
uh, from that moment, the seeds are put into the ground. We are ready to irrigate immediately following. And so you've you've talked several different types of irrigation to achieve proper germination in that field. What type of irrigation are you running on that? Overhead sprinkler irrigation where we'll have a booster pump out there sucking water out of the, the field ditch. You know, if I could just give a, a real brief example of this valley, I want to say we're at about 55,000 uh, irrigated farmable acres. When the water comes from the river, uh, it drops into the All-American Canal, which then feeds into three main canals across the valley, the West Main, the Central, and the East Main. And what uh, what the water district is a part of is making sure that they have somebody on every hour of every day, every day of the, the year, yeah, managing our orders. So when I say orders, I have a schedule, and so do the rest of the farmers. I try to submit all of my water requests by Friday, and that's for the for the next seven days. Once I order my water and I say, hey, I, I'd like to have, you know, 18 feet at, at 12 hours to water this, this wheat field, um, then that's the Bureau of Reclamation that's releasing the water down the system. And then the, the water users, ditch riders, who are some, some great individuals, will then basically just shuttle and, and direct that water through the irrigation infrastructure, all the canal systems, into the right area. And then uh, once we open up our field ditches or laterals there, that's where we'll we'll have it set up to uh, drop a siphon in there into the booster pump and, and run it into the spring. Now, wait, are you telling me that you have to be good at volumetric math to be a lettuce farmer? <laughs> you know, thankfully, I have a lot of historic data to go off of, but every year uh, it's it's new New math. Yeah. And uh, especially right now, as, as this discussion of drought continues, it's, you know, it is, it's, it's funny and it is getting a little more, uh, a little scary because our, our math is, uh, is needing to change. Sure. So we're trying to find better ways to, to use less and less. So obviously water and that river is an important aspect of making Yuma the lettuce capital of the world. But talk about the climate. What is actually happening to your desert climate in order to be able to grow that because when i grow lettuce here our biggest thing is the heat and once lettuce gets hot it gets really bitter and so i'm just as a dummy i'm trying to picture how in a hot desert you're able to grow a cool season crop you know again choosing the right variety matters that comes into play and how we're able to manage our soil and our soil moisture um, has been a key part of the success of of this region and going back to TikTok. A lot of times folks will ask really good questions and say, hey, you know, if it's so sunny or, or if you don't get that much rain, should you be farming lettuce there? Should you be farming it somewhere else? All viable questions. It would be wrong of me to get offended by those questions. I'm glad people are concerned and I'm glad they're asking. And, I, and I'm grateful to be just one of many resources that people can ask. And and I always try to tell them I, I'm only speaking on behalf of our our farm here. You know, please continue to, to ask questions ask questions to others that you see but um with with everything that we're doing here we're operating again off of three and a quarter inches of rain a year and sunny sunny skies um back in i want to say it was the summer of 2019 i mapped out that we had 99 straight days in the summer over 100 degrees oh and, uh, i was real bummed i was going to make some t-shirts at 100 100 <laughs> days of 100 degrees but, no. uh, but uh it, it did it break that much now, Right. And, uh, you know, so right now is we're starting, we're gearing up for the warm time of the year. And so most of the, well, all of the lettuce is gone every year though. We see more and more people experimenting with different varieties where they've got lettuce in the field into late April. Wow. I mean, I saw spring mix out here until 
the first of May spring mix baby leaf lettuce. And I know it's varieties, it's irrigation. And going back to those questions that are asked on social media, one of the common questions that is, in my opinion, the same for gardening or, or large scale farming, it's about water. Contrary to what many people realize, less is more out here. Mm. We don't need to water this lettuce as much as people think. So often we'll be out here, you know, I could say uh, we have two seasons out here, summer and pre-season. So our pre-summer, <laughs> excuse me. So our pre-summer, which is winter, you know, our winter days can sometimes still get warm and we can still stretch a field anywhere from 30 to 40 days between irrigations. That just means we're, we're just letting the plant live. The plant is thriving. Let those roots do what it does. Less is more in that case. So the sunny weather here and this this drier climate benefits us for a reason. The, this this was established. This farming was established here years ago for for many reasons, and one of that is one of those is because of the consistent weather. So being able to have such consistent weather allows us to plan very efficiently. We're able to apply much less herbicides and insecticides. We're able to apply far less fertilizers and we're able to irrigate far less when we have those consistent days, albeit it can get really boring, guys. I do miss clouds. <laughs> uh, anytime a cloud rolls by, I grab my camera and I'm like, kids, look. And they're like, dad, is it going to rain? And I'm like, we live in Yuma. It's, it's no, like no. the <laughs> like the movie Holes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. That's funny. So we got our, our overhead irrigation running. Seeds are in the ground and we see germination. What happens from there? I mean, it, it, I'm assuming it's not, you're just not watching lettuce grow after that point. That's a great question. So once it germinates, uh, we know we're off to the races. We'll, we'll do stand counts and start to just kind of gauge what kind of a germination we have, a success rate, if you will, just seeing what we've got. Um, through that whole process, those first couple of weeks, we're really wanting to make sure that as the roots are establishing, that the leaves are, are healthy. Um, that we don't see any insect damage, depending on the soil texture, that we don't overwater and it seal up. Sometimes the soil will seal up and, and get kind of hard. That little quarter of an inch crust, because the sun is baking the top of the soil, it can look dry. Again, I'll do videos and lives and I'm walking out in the field and people say, gosh, your soil looks so dry. But I'll flake just that little top crust off. Moisture. And there's moisture all, there all capped inside of that bed. Yeah. But if it seals up too much and we even get a slight breeze, it'll just knock that stem around and all of a sudden you see the plants gone. They've just blown away. It's not even birds. So it's, I mean, we're talking from the moment it germinates, we're finessing uh, when we irrigate, uh, what we're going to apply. And as we watch it through its stages, then we start to say, okay, uh, you know, we're a few weeks into this growth. Now we might want to thin it back. Rarely will we have a lettuce crop planted to stand, meaning if I know that a head lettuce crop wants, you know, I want to be about 10 and a half, 11 inches apart come harvest, I may not plant every 10 and a half inches. You know, I may plant two and a 2.2 inches, two and a quarter inches, 2.3, somewhere in there, which means mathematically we'll have to come in and remove every two or every three plants by thinning. And so that's where a lot of the labor comes in. And if I can feed off of that, that's where we see a lot of the technology. Yeah. So let's talk about equipment. What are you actually using to thin that out? Guys walking through fields, is there machines that do that? So for, for many years, you'll see crew buses out in the valley where it's 30, 40 people walking with their hose. And I know, Noah, you were expressing recently, it's good to have a favorite hoe. That's right. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Your TikTok there. But uh, you'll, see, you'll see crews out there with their heads down and it's a, it's a rhythm. 
And honestly, it's a beautiful sound when you can just hear it. It's just a whooshing and them and just, I mean, it's beautiful. But we are in a place now where finding people available to do that is hard. Mm-hmm. No matter the pay, it's it's finding people available to do that. So machinery and technology has really started to to ramp up over the last 10, 20 years. And we're seeing more and more, uh, not just large companies, harvest companies who are buying these automated thinners, robotic thinners. Now you're seeing regular farmers mm-hmm. and, and family businesses purchasing or renting these automated thinners, which will, in essence, come into the field. And through different types of technology, the common ones use a laser eye, and it is looking at the plants and it's counting. And it's identifying by the size and by the leaf texture, oh, that's a weed or that's an extra plant that we don't need. And the machine will either spray a chemical on it, which is sometimes a, a high rate of nitrogen. Some will use a herbicide on it. That's rare. Um, and then the others are just an actual mechanized tool that will will skip the plant you want to keep and then remove the others. And the benefit of that technology, some of the cells pitches that these companies are using, is that by the time that machine is done thinning a field, it can map out an entire block for you and say, you started the field with, you know, 60,000 plants. We removed 19,000 plants. Your estimated yield is on track, you know, to be 85% ready when it's uh, going to be scheduled to harvest. Oh, that's cool. Now, see, besides your really, really good jokes, one thing that your TikTok page is actually known for is showing off the different type of technology and equipment that y'all use. It's And it's one of the things that I really enjoy about your page. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think technology can be scary. You know, even for me, and I, and I love I love science, I love technology. It changes hard sometimes, and so social media has allowed myself and many others to really just kind of introduce, slowly introduce people to some of the technology we're using out here. Um, when somebody hears our farm, and 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 we're one of the smaller farms in the valley, but somebody hears what we're doing, they're like, "Oh, you're just a large corporate farm," and I get it. You know, for whatever the reason, that's where your mind is at. That's what you've read, you've heard, and and I'm bummed that it is to that point. But let me show you what we do, why we do what we do. Let me introduce you to my family, who's highly involved with with our farm, and and it's okay if if you still don't vibe with that. That's hey. That's what's great about our country. We have so many people gardening now, getting back to the the roots of it. Um, you know, I'm sure uh, I'm sure you guys have. Well, maybe not. You guys have pretty awesome TikToks. You probably don't receive much hate, but um, on occasion, I'll get some pretty interesting comments. But one in particular that happens every now and then, and I've appreciated it, has been, "Don't support this guy. Go grow your own vegetables." <laughs> and 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 often I met with I met with confusion when I agree with them. Wow. It's no joke. I agree with you 100%. I would love, and I mean this, I would love for a harvest company to come to me and go, John, um, guess what? We don't need you to grow spinach next year because everybody and their grandma is apparently growing it and they're selling it in farmer's markets mm, and they're sharing it with their community. It's not going to happen. And feeding, you know. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I'm, but, you know what I, but, but you know what I mean, I though? I understand what you're so saying, yeah. I would, love, I would love that to be a reason because I want people uh, – one of the reasons I, I, I really love your pages, both of you and, and many others in the gardening world. I am not a great gardener. I'm still trying to uh, get a garden going here on the farm. But one reason I love them is because it is it is the same as farming on a whole different level. I mean, you guys are dealing with so many crops and so many plants and, and so many different variables that educating people on how to do it, that there's a lot of things you can grow and it, it's pretty easy. 
And then there's some things that that are going to whoop your bottom and you're going to be kind of surprised. And I'll, I'll tell you, one of them is I tell people often, grow, grow cauliflower, <laughs> grow cauliflower. And then uh, and then come talk to me yep. and and, uh, and and we will probably be able to, to share a laugh about it. <laughs> so at some point, overhead irrigation, I'm assuming, comes out of the field because we have to get ready for harvest or does, do, does that overhead irrigation stay in the field? So the only time overhead irrigation sprinkler pipes stay in the field is when it's an 84-inch crop, an 84-inch bed, meaning that's a wide bed. Because if you tried to furrow irrigate mathematically, you can't push water in to the center of the bed when it's that big. Those beds, you would see cilantro, spinaches, spring mix items. Everything else, you're going to see those sprinklers pulled out pretty quick into the season because a tractor is going to have to go through and is going to have to cultivate after uh, thinning those extra plants out. Then you're going to have to side dress some fertilizer and uh, you're going to see a, a spiking rig and a bola to to compact the furrow, not compact the furrows, but shape the furrow so the water can just flush right across the field and use as little as possible. And then that's where we really do just watch it grow. But while that's happening, we're doing a hundred other operations because of most of these plantings are anywhere from two acre plantings to 10 acre, 20 acre plantings. And, and it's throughout, you know, from September through January, February. So it's, it's a long season of pushing these along and getting them ready to harvest. Yeah. At any given time, you could have lettuce in every stage planted and ready to harvest, correct? hundred percent. Absolutely. So talk us through harvest. Are you using a machine? What does that process look like? Both. That's the nice thing about the technology available. The technology, uh, the machines that are being used, you'll see are more of a mower for spinaches and spring mix items that'll be bulk and put into those reusable plastic containers, RPCs. And then the rest of the lettuces uh, that we grow, the romaines and icebergs, and even the cauliflowers, it's all hand. So you'll see a crew go out there with a winged machine that covers a uh, a large amount of rows at one time. They cut the lettuce. They they throw it up there on a table. There's somebody that identifies any issues with it or they throw it back in the field and then they hydrate it. They'll either wrap it or box it right there. And then somebody up on top of the trailer takes the, the pallets, uh, excuse me, the cartons, puts them on the pallets. And then by the time that machine gets towards the end of the field, a truck backs up to that, that uh, implement in the middle of the field or at the end, wherever it is. And they've got these conveyor systems that will shuttle 12 pallets over onto the truck the truck flies to the end of the field hooks up to a trailer that's already been loaded and then he takes off to the cooler where all those pallets will be sent that is super efficient (laughs) so crazy i've got to admit i've had this misconception in the past i think a lot of people have that when you're growing produce at such a large scale you're not getting to see every single individual plant that's often a complaint because instead of a garden where you're seeing each individual food item in my head, I'm just thinking, ah, you guys just harvested that and threw it in and you don't know what it looks like. But you guys are actually taking the time to to quality check each head of lettuce as it comes off the field. If anything, you're going to see four or five different hands touching that product between just harvesting it and getting it into the carton. Wow. So That's once amazing. it's in that truck, it's been boxed up, palletized, it's going into the truck out of the field. Where does it go from there? How does it make it to our grocery store? Yeah, great question. So the trucks leave the field. They'll go straight to coolers that are in town, multiple coolers, which are basically these large warehouses 
um, that are really cold inside. Um, but the truck pulls up outside. Most of these coolers will have a large forklift that'll take 12 pallets at a time off of a trailer. All the whole the whole trailer will just come off at once. They put them on this conveyor that pushes them into what looks like a storage container. The doors shut. They suck all the heat out, and as as quickly as they're sucking the heat out, they're flushing it with cold temperature to pause the growth, pause the the uh, the the life of that plant, if you will. So it's just in limbo, and those will then those cartons will be sent into the cooler where they will not sit for longer than really a day um, because a refrigerated semi-truck will already be waiting or be on their way to load up. Um, and in the peak months between November and March, when Yuma is the winter lettuce capital of the world, we will see anywhere between 1,200 and 1,500 refrigerated trucks a day leaving Ooh. Yuma, taking fresh vegetables across the country. I think that's one thing that people also don't realize. They hear the tales about apples and, and how they could be eating a six-month-old apple and all this. But when you get lettuce, it's fresh. I mean, it's it's fresh. It went straight from the field into that cooler, onto the truck, straight to your grocery store. You know, we have a joke out here with uh, there's a lot of medjool dates that are grown out here in this region as well. Those medjool dates can sit in a freezer for a year. Mm. The, the shelf life, uh, we always joke, we go, man, if it snows, we'll lose a crop. A truck, if a truck has to sit an extra day on a highway somewhere, it, they'll lose the quality of it, sometimes be rejected. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the lifespan of getting vegetables from the field, from the moment a lettuce knife cuts it at the, at the stalk there, and it is loaded up and put on the, you know, the grocery shelves for somebody to choose and take to their table. And then hopefully <laughs> they'll eat it that night or the next couple nights. You know, the clock is ticking. So you said there was 1,200 to 1,500 trucks that are leaving in peak season, November through February. What are the odds that someone buys lettuce during that time period that it came from your farm? As many cartons leave <laughs> this valley, um, I'll tell you this, it, maybe the odds aren't as high that it'll be coming strictly from my fields. But the odds that you're eating vegetables that I have seen <laughs> or driven by or watched grow from from seed to to harvest are extremely high. That's amazing. I don't know why I get like full body chills when I think I'm just it gets me so excited. <laughs> well, and the reason I ask that, obviously, it's not like you are growing every single head of lettuce for people. But I think it's important for for people to understand how small this concept is that agriculture is such a large industry, but really when you break it down, it's family owned farms that are providing the food, even if you're not buying it from a, a local farmer's market, but if you're buying it from a grocery store, a lot of those still come from family farms. Oh, a hundred percent. And I know that there is a romantic idea about a family farm being small and really how do you define small? Like I said earlier, we're one of the smaller farms in the Valley. Um, but I know to some people we're massive. And so it's all in perspective. What I can tell you about our farm and, and our operation is that since the early 1940s, we have continued to change and improve every year. And it's not just a sales pitch. I tell people often and probably too much, you know, I may not be the, the most risky businessman and may not uh, end my, you know, <laughs> my days farming uh, as being the most successful. But my hope is that um, when people look back at our family, that they will know that we were trustable. We farmed with integrity because we actually care about our environment. We actually care about the consumers um, because we too are the consumer. 
John, it's no easy task taking that lettuce from seed to harvest and feeding America. And so will you leave our listeners with some last words of wisdom? Don't be afraid to fail in whatever it is that you're doing. Expect it. (laughs) It's okay because it means you're on the right track. And I tell my kids, I tell my employees, and I, I try to tell myself on the regular, if we strive for perfection, We'll achieve excellence. Well, John, thanks again for your time. It was an honor and a privilege. I really was only disappointed in one thing, and that's we didn't get enough dad jokes out of you. <laughs> but if you want to learn more about lettuce and get that classic comedy from John, where can people find you on social media? Well, just to get to the root of it, really, uh, it's at the Farmer John. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> at the Farmer John, J-O-N. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. The care of the earth is our most ancient and most worthy, and after all, our most pleasing responsibility. That's a quote from Wendell Berry. And I feel like this interview with John put things into perspective. Oftentimes, larger farms, they they get this, this misinterpretation that because they're of a certain size or they use certain technology, that A, they're not a family farm, and that B, that somehow they're not good stewards of the land. But man, I just, I, I, I get so motivated and so excited to hear John talk about all the things they do to be good stewards of the land. And then of course, all the pride that he takes in the produce he grows. Yeah, I just feel like of all the guests we've had on this podcast, John did such a great job of encapsulating the values that we have on this podcast. When you and I set out on this journey to educate people about the nuances of farming and the actual practices of growing food, it was actually our mission to highlight the family values of that farming and that the producer is much more connected to growing crops than the average consumer really understands. And man, I just love hearing his involvement and his passion for growing food, not just for his community, but for the entire United States. Oh, it's so awesome. You know, we've never actually explained how we came up with the idea of farming for dummies. That's true. I guess my thoughts on it was always that really at our core, we're all dummies. Even those of us within the ag industry oftentimes don't have a clue how another leg of the ag industry does things. Yeah, it kind of came about because Tyler and I started realizing the differences of growing the exact same food, tomatoes in a different climate. And we're like, wow, like it's way different for you in Texas than it is here. Even though it's the exact same thing, imagine how many unique opportunities or challenges there are in different agriculture industries. Well, I can tell you one thing, we're going to feature them all. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Till the day we die. We're not going to stop. We're not going to stop. We're not stopping. Yeah. We're not going to stop. We're here to the bitter end. I don't know about you, Tyler, but until the day I die, we're going to be podcasting. (laughs) Dummies till the day we die. (laughs) That's right. I love it. We should tattoo that on our foreheads. (laughs) All right. Before this gets out of hand, we should move on to the mailbag. Tyler, what do you have today? So today's mailbag question comes from Julie in Dallas. Hi, Julie. (laughs) Now, Noah, I actually had to scroll back through and find this one because it was specifically about lettuce. And I thought, how perfect to answer a lettuce question. We saved it for you, Julie. Absolutely. So she says to the Farming for Dummies podcast, next time, just put, hey, dummies. It's what we love. (laughs) (laughs) She says to the Farming for Dummies podcast, 
Thank you all so much for the show so far. Been really enjoying it. I have a question about my lettuce. We planted some romaine here in Dallas towards the end of April. We were getting ready to harvest it and thought we'd do a taste test, but noticed that the taste was awful. Please help, all caps, 12 exclamation points. Love, Julie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Julie, Noah actually touched on this in the episode. Lettuce is notorious for getting that very strong, very pungent, bitter taste as it warms up, especially with our weather here in Texas. So one thing that I'd recommend, if you're in an area like mine, most of Texas, that that lettuce actually be planted in the fall. We would actually follow Farmer John's schedule. Sometime between September and February would be perfect, and you're going to see that taste drastically improve. Now, there are a few things that you can do to help improve the flavor once you've harvested it, and John actually touched on them. A nice hydration of the lettuce, whether that be a quick dip in cold water, and then get it in the cooler can help with that flavor. Yeah, and my only tip is make sure you harvest it in the morning time when it's cooler than in the afternoon during the hot sun, and that'll definitely help as well. And if you have a question for the Farm Dummy experts, you can email us at farmdummies at gmail.com. And thanks again to everyone that has left us a rating, a review on the podcast. We appreciate everyone that let us know how we're doing. (laughs) I see what you did there. Also, Tyler, guess what? What? We made it on a list, a top 30 list of best agriculture podcasts. Do you know where we ended up? Where did we end up? Number 10. Room for improvement, but top, top 10, baby. I'll take 10 all day. What list was that, Noah? Yeah, so there's some excellent, excellent podcasts on this list. If you go to Feedspot, you'll actually find a list of 30 best agriculture podcasts. You'll find ourselves and a lot of our friends that have podcasts as well. Super exciting and an honor to be in the company of such great podcasts. Man, I got to be honest. I didn't expect that, and I was so excited when I saw it. Making waves, making waves, man. Well, that's enough from us dummies. As always, we hope you learned something. And remember, like John Wayne used to say, life is hard. It's hard. Harder if you're stupid. We'll see y'all on the next podcast.